Greetings, Internet. Welcome back to the the Circuit Podcast. I'm Jay Goldberg. Ben Baharan is on a journey of self-exploration this week and should be back next week. But I'm happy to be joined by a special guest, Professor John Metzler of the University of California, Berkeley's Haas School of Business. Uh, Professor Metzler teaches courses in strategy and international trade. His research focuses on uh, telecom, global technology trade, uh, national technology policy, clusters, innovation and design. Uh, he's a long time, uh, deep, has long time deep experience in technologies and with startups. He's worked a lot with big Japanese companies and he's fluent in Japanese and knows the Japanese ecosystem very well. So we're going to talk about Japanese semiconductors. But before we get into that, John, introduce yourself to the people. All right. Uh, well, thanks for having. Um, I'm I'm sad Ben's not here, uh, but I'll try and fill his his very big shoes. Uh, so thanks for having and um, say hello to Ben in Essentia. Um So I'm a lecturer in the business school uh, at UC Berkeley. We actually do have capitalism and <laughs> or, uh, teach a form of it at Berkeley. And I teach both undergrads, and MBAs, and also public policy students. I've been at it now for this, next year will be my tenth year mainly teach strategy electives and then uh one core strategy for network economy which comes out of telecom media and other um clusters which really focuses on regional economies and a lot of those you know trace their roots to the semiconductor industry being them. so if you're studying a regional economy you usually have to end up studying the histories of semis uh and they give you a location so that's me and then uh, as i tell friends when i'm introducing you jay uh i'm sort of you know while you were in china selling uh beverages i was in japan consuming canned coffee in the 90s so you were the alternate scenario had i studied uh chinese instead of japanese when i was an impressionable immigrant so again thanks for having excellent thank you for joining so I want to talk about Japanese semiconductor companies, the Japanese <laughs> semiconductor industry today. Yeah. This is a topic that's been percolating in the back of my head for a while now. And I, you know, I assume most of our listeners have read uh, Chris Miller's Chip Wars books or have actually lived <laughs> this experience where back in the 80s, Japan's semiconductor companies were seen as a major threat to US electronics companies. There's a lot of fear, a lot of isolation and protectionism going on. <laughs> and it really felt like Japanese semi companies were about to dominate the world. <laughs> And then we got to the 90s and that didn't happen. And it, at least from my point of view, it feels like their whole industry just went into hibernation. And absolutely, there are pockets of excellence, individual companies here and there doing interesting things. But the industry as, the whole, as a whole got very, very sleepy. Until recently, and I've, it feels to me like something has changed. This is at least a theory I'm working on. That something has changed in the last year or two. We're starting to see a lot more signs of life, maybe some new policies, yeah. lots of more corporate activities. There's some really interesting things going on there. And so I wanted to bring John on to discuss like what's going on with Japanese semis. So to get us started, can you sort of walk us through the history of Japan's semis industry? And then, you know, focus on like what really went wrong in the nineties. Oh my goodness. Okay. Small stop. <laughs> all, right, so, all right. So thank again. Thanks for having. Um, so it, it, it's funny because in class I've been Assigning from Tiger Technology, which some of your readers might know, the ones that went past Chip War and actually went to the roots may have read Tiger Technology. That was written about 2000. And it lays out strategies in uh, South Korea, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, and Taiwan, all of which were sort of catch-up strategies relative to Japan. So you had companies that were sort of looking at the Japan model of nurturing a domestic semiconductor industry, emulating it in some way, and in some cases ended up ultimately one-upping it. Right, in a variety of ways that we know. we're living in that present day right now. 
But it was interesting to see sort of Japan as model that other countries looked at, emulated, and in some cases, you know, end up surpassing. Uh, and it's interesting because now you see Japan almost as like either provider of niche products that help other companies or countries with their on semiconductor industry, or there's another view, which I think we'll get into in this conversation is Japan as catch up, right? Uh, actually going back and doing some of the things uh, that helped Taiwan, Korea leap forward, for example. And there's some activities the Japanese government has been facilitating that sort of point to that if you're an optimist about uh, Japan. So that's maybe one first place to go with this conversation. The second, and I, I think you want to go to, is like specific companies that you know listeners should be looking at. And so I'm happy to, to get into that as well. Yeah, so I'm interested though. Oh. Is is my oh. intuition right? Did the industry kind of it went into decline in in the mid '90s? Yeah, uh, decline. So you, it's funny because uh, I was I was working at a wireless location startup for much of the 2000s, and I remember NEC Semiconductor coming to me are coming to us. We were all 30 people. We had maybe an FPGA and a K2A ASIC. We hadn't gotten really past that, but looking for our foundry business. And what I didn't realize was the backstory of why they were looking for foundry business, even from small starters at the time, which is like, yeah, the mothership was struggling. They were trying to fill capacity. And so any small startup that had something was worth pursuing. This conversation was in 2002, 2003 or so. Right. Uh, you know, several things happened. Some of these are the impacts weren't listed, limited to Japan. So as you would well know, Jay, the rise of merchant silicon sort of obviated the need to have a captive semiconductor arm if you wanted to build a handset, right? Qualcomm comes along and, well, that ended up enabling a lot of companies to sort of leapfrog into the handset industry, having not grown up and nurtured a semiconductor arm itself. So much as Japan was sort of disintermediated there, so too were ultimately Motorola um, and then Philips Semiconductor, which is later spun out, right, as NXP. So that's, that's certainly one. Uh, the rise of the Prickly Foundry. So an interesting reframing of your question is why is you know TSMC not a Japanese company, right? Uh, and so was there not a champion? And Japan tried to emulate what TSMC was doing in the early 2000s, ultimately unsuccessfully for uh, for a variety of reasons. But that would be another thing to point to. Uh, maybe a third, and we can get into, is the limitations of an ecosystem model where you have... You know, kind of industry and government working together and a select set of industry players working together to collaborate on research. And do they all stay in the group? <laughs> do you have incentive to st- you know, kind of stick with the group? Do you have incentive to deserve? That almost sounds like OPEC. I don't want to ever flame it that way. And then maybe, and I would put ambiguity about the national champion at the top of the stack. Usually for Japan, what pulled semis along is you had device companies at the top that were sources of demand for semiconductors that their captive arms would make. If those companies aren't doing well, then where's the demand coming from? Is it from inside or it's from outside? That ambiguity certainly, I think, hurt also. That was a mouthful, so I'll pause there. Okay, lots of stuff to dig into. Yes. To to, to before we get into some of the individual names, sure. Let, let me just ask at at a high level, what, what's going on in the Japanese economy right now? Sure. Uh, it's a great great framing, and I often think of Japan as an example for other companies to look at, not necessarily the example to emulate, but an example on what our future looks like. And there have been various framings of that. Bill Gibson famously said, if you want to see the future, go to Japan. It may be not your future, but it's a future that you can look at and choose whether to emulate it. Uh, your headline is when your population, 30% of which is over 65. I, I think that doesn't necessarily dictate outcomes, but it frames the conversations you can have as a country. 
So, and Korea is aging, Taiwan is aging, mainland China is aging, uh, Korea in particular is aging at a rapid rate. So a lot of what Japan's going through, other countries will go through or are starting to see uh, symptoms of. Uh, Japan shares some attributes with both Taiwan and South Korea, namely you have a super city where industry and government uh, are largely co-located. So the impacts of aging tend to show up outside uh, in rural areas more quickly. So there, there are towns in Japan which are already 40%, 45%, over 65%. And so I think you have to put that out there <laughs> first if you're going to say what's going on with your macroeconomy and how to handle that, right? And what, that, what does that mean for vitality? What does it mean for immigration? What does it mean for a lot of things? Um, what does it mean for university research? Uh, relative to my time, so I, I was in Japan for about five years in the 90s, and the share of population that was immigrant was about 1%, and that was all in everything, 1%. Now it's 3%, which doesn't sound like a lot compared to the US, which is more like 14%. Uh, so we're in California, it's like 35% first generation. But you see it more if you're in the big cities, right? So relative to previous, you basically have, you know, instead of one and a half million foreigners walking around, it's more like four and a half, five million. That sure will grow up. Uh, we'll keep going up uh, for a variety of reasons. You have industries where you just need people, right? Uh, if you go to a convenience store at night in Japan, the person helping you is not native Japanese. It's someone who's coming and is working, right? So you'll see that a lot of day-to-day -day, uh, interactions, either convenience store or construction. But also manufacturing, where there are towns that just don't have enough people, and they're letting people in search for for on a manufacturing worker basis. Uh, and then the other that Japan's trying out, and I think it should try out more aggressively, is emulating some of the digital worker programs that we've seen be reasonably effective in you know, Thailand, um, Portugal, Spain. Like if you're bright and you have an idea, you'll have you'll have an easier time getting a visa now for Japan. Than you would have historically, and I think that's a good thing to pursue. If you get enough bright people, you know, pursuing startup ideas, hopefully something sticks. So I'll stop there. That was a lot. Okay, so it sounds like if if we're talking about semiconductors and trying, like they're right. clearly trying to grow that industry, we have to keep in the back of our heads the there is the real possibility that they don't have enough people, people. enough talent, uh, yeah. the whole pipeline to really. Right. And so to, to to pick up on that point. You know, can you get people coming to your universities and get them to stay? Right is, and that's and that's the U.S. model. Right, come to our schools. Well, you'll have a job on the other end. You'll stay. You'll prosper and enjoy quality of life. Like, can Japan do that in some way? I think is existential broadly, but also certainly applies to the semiconductor industry, large tech firms. Is can they get talent to come? And is there enough talent there, right, to really nurture champions not over for a few years, but over decades? Okay. So let's let's dig into semi specifically now. Um, my interpretation of the, the Japanese <laughs> electronics complex is that it tends to be <laughs> fairly siloed among yeah. a number, a small number of large companies. The old Koretsu model is is that where most of Japanese semi companies are today, sort of part of some form of corp, you know, integrated corporate structure. Does that I, still does that still exist today? Not necessarily. Um, I, I think it, I might reframe it as you have a lot of mid-sized companies, mid-sized specialists in something. Um, so I'm thinking of AGC or like Nito or Sui Chemical. Um, you know these photo mass providers that provide specialist tools and themselves, from a public equities perspective, are probably mid-caps. They're not large companies. You have a preponderance of these, and this is actually an issue of national concern, which is none of our specialists in, say, the right photoresist chemical are all that large unto themselves. 
what happens if they're acquired? And you actually saw an interesting prophylactic buyout of a healthy company recently. Um, JSR was just acquired by JIC, uh, which is the National Sort of Innovation Fund. That fund has historically been used to prop up like a Renaissance or a Japan display, where you had some too important to fail national champion that needed help and propping. And it was the first time they'd ever used that fund, JIC uh, again, uh, preemptively to say, "We're this is a champion we don't want to see acquired." And I think you're going to see more of that. Right. It was it was a healthy company. It was yeah, it was very profitable. It was JSR doing well. was doing fine. <laughs> But it was, you know, it was a, it was a several billion revenue company. It wasn't tens of billions, and so from the perspective of an international firm, it probably presented an interesting target. And so there was a that was an interesting prophylactic national acquisition, and that that was a fun term to use. So hopefully, I get to repeat that one. <laughs> was there actually a deal in the in the works? Was somebody looking at them, or were they just? That, I don't know the answer to that question. But certainly, my phone blew up that day. Uh, I think I had some stuff from you saying what's going on here. Um, yeah. I did have a conversation from someone from JIC who demurred to comment on that particular deal. Uh, we were side by side at the dinner uh, a few weeks ago, and like, so is, is this going to be first of many, or what's going on? And she just kind of smiled and moved on to the next topic. Interesting. So, all right. So we have we have a, a, a I don't I don't know if it's quite a cluster, but we have a, a certain uh, a, a number of companies that are important for semiconductors who are p- providing various inputs, masks photoresists, chemicals, yeah. those kinds of inputs. Uh, I'd say that there's another big category of uh, semiconductor design companies. Not a big category, but there are a few mm-hmm. a few big ones there. Yes. Any Anybody you, you want to point out who you well, think is good uh, on the design side? Yeah, I mean, Tokyo Electron is, is certainly there and vital, right? And it probably has been very concerned about our policies and what that how the impact that has on their business, right? And their ability to ship uh, and support uh, Chinese companies, for example. But that would be another... Certainly to point out, uh, broadly then Renaissance, right? Which is kind of the rump of Japan semiconductor in a lot of ways. Um, Renaissance, last time I looked at them closely, basically had two business lines. They had automotive and then everything else. So it was like yeah. business unit number one, automotive microcontrollers and then the other parts. And so that's one where just because the value add in cars keeps going up, that just provided from chip software. Uh, yeah, this is an important company as well, right? And has a large uh, share of microcontrollers for autobus. Yeah, I think I think Renaissance is interesting because uh, m- my understanding is it was it it was an entity sort of created with implicit government backing. Yes, where they went around and they acquired the semi the internal captive semiconductor teams within each of the conglomerates and sort of merged them into one. Yeah, you had NEC and Hitachi and a couple other companies all kind of poured in it. Toshiba was separate, and Toshiba probably gets its own episode at some point because that's just the gift that keeps on giving in so many different ways. But yeah, uh, Renaissance derives its roots from the former Hitachi and NEC semiconductor. And DRAMs were hived out. That got poured into what became LPDOC. Micron acquired LPDOC in like 2013, I want to say. So one of our top three memory providers in the US entry in that market actually owns a lot of the forward Japan DRAM assets. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's SK Hynix. And then Toshiba, that part of Toshiba, the memory part is now what's called Kyoxia, K-I-O-X-I-A, and that still exists and is, is another player. If nothing else, I'm learning how to pronounce all these names that I've been pronouncing uh, correctly for years. I've said out loud before, so I'm doing my best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but all the others I've been pronouncing wrong for forever. 
Right. Uh, so, all right. So then, all right. So we have uh, chemical makers. We have Tokyo Electron and Canon who are doing interesting things in wafer fabrication equipment. Yeah. We have Renaissance doing uh, automotive automotive microcontrollers or just microcontrollers in general, much of which is happens to be automotive. Yeah. Um, very interesting company. It's actually been like I, for years. It was a it was basically a jobs program. Like they they barely grew. They just were there to employ people. And yet recently they've started becoming much more active. They've done a few big acquisitions of US companies. Yes. They're they're a real company all of a sudden. And they have a clear strategy around microcontrollers and doing some interesting things there. And, and that's really what was the kernel of all of this was I saw what they were doing and I realized that they weren't alone and being more active. Sure. Uh, Sony with their image process uh, image sensors. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a real company. That's important. <laughs> And uh, and then I would add Murata. Yes, uh, which you have experience with. I, I worked for Murata for a month after acquisition. So yes, um, but you didn't stay for some reason. You're podcasting instead. I because <laughs> this is the dream, right? Well, I, I think to, if I had stayed, if I'd wanted to work for them, I would have had to move to Kyoto or um, the stories you could have told. <laughs> You should have you should have been PMI'd for like three years just to all the stories you could tell. Murata is interesting though because they're they're they do have a decent semiconductor business yeah. largely through the acquisitions they've made uh, in yes. the US. You're welcome, uh, but uh, but they're they're they mostly make uh, components, passive components, saw filters, resistors, capacitors, things like that. Um, but an important, well-run company that I don't think gets enough attention. Yeah. Well, on that on that note, they're one of those companies that has the. I'm glad I have the Apple business, but I'm ambivalent that I have the Apple business, and and you can probably speak to that better than I can. Which is, you have the socket, but the socket is really a tough one to maintain, and not necessarily a profitable socket for you. There, I just logged one. Yeah, there you go. The, the good news is you want Apple as a customer. The bad news is you've won Apple as a customer. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I remember having yeah. some interactions with them, and they were like, "Yeah, they were like, yeah, we 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 make money." We make a tolerable margin that Apple lets us keep. Basically, what they were saying politely. Right, and then and then you mentioned Japan Display. What's what's going on with them? Uh, Apple actually propped them up a little bit. Um, and this is from a few years ago, where they were trying to have another source for iPhone screens, and so that's not to be too dependent on LG or others. So that's where I'm most current on them. That was one where Apple was like, actually, I need to make sure I have a potential third source for screens. So to me, that implies they have some amount of Apple support. Uh, and then it kind of as a proxy of Apple, you know, Foxconn bought uh, Sharp's display business, the flat panel business. Right. And so that exists as part of Foxconn Japan. And who knows what's going on there? Yes. Right. I do have a funny aside. I was actually working, and, and I think I can say this for posterity. Uh, I was working for Sharp on a project when that acquisition was going down. And um, Sharp was in, in a tough spot at the time. And uh, it was one of the few projects where I was like, am I going to get paid? <laughs> yeah, usually when I'm working with startups, you know, that's that's sort of existential in part of it. But if you're working for large companies, you don't have that. But they, it was a really, it was a company that was going through a while. And the deal, or would it go through, would not, was a backdrop for that conversation. It's super interesting, right? I mean, it, after semiconductors, <laughs> it, it, you know, dis displays are probably one of the most capital-intensive businesses in tech right now. Yes. So th that was th they went through some tough times, and now they're part of the 
Foxconn being a really demanding company. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So is there anyone else we should be looking at? So you had Sony, and I guess what's interesting about Sony is, you know, Sony has always had this, am I a device company or am I a sensor company tension? And you see that in other companies as well. And Samsung's a great example, which am I? Um, but, you know, the CMOS sensor side of Sony has been one of their lifelines and growth engines. Basically, if you have a consumer drone, it's got a Sony CMOS sensor in it. But it might not be Sony the manufacturer that makes the drone, right? And I think there's an interesting metaphor in there. Um, so, yeah, I mean... When I last looked at this DJI, I had like 70% of that market. This is from a few years ago. That was a Sony sensor, in there. Um, which by definition meant Sony had 70% drone sensor share. And uh, and Rapidus? Yes. So that's that's new, right? So, right. yeah. And, and, and this will get into our, our conversation with the minister from a couple of weeks ago. So Rapidus is a JV consortium model. Uh, it is a government-facilitated industry adopted coalition attempt to get Japan up close to the technology frontier in, in semiconductor fabrication. Um, groundbreaking happened in September 2023 up in Hokkaido. They didn't do it in Kyushu, which is where kind of the remnants of Japan's semiconductor cluster is. So interesting decision. It's worked a little bit from a clustering perspective. ASML is already putting an office up there and some of the other suppliers have started putting headcount in Hokkaido next to it. So at least it's working from that perspective. But this is a you know sort of the consortium model that Japan's famous for. And NTT and Denso and Toyota and SoftBank and a variety of other companies are all shareholders. Uh, I've had some conversations with people involved in it. And I, I think the culture there is we can't fail. Like this has to work and it has to be on time. And we have to have two nanometer by 2027. Who will use it? Is I think the interesting question, but you know if Japan has a functioning two nanometer fab in twenty twenty seven that at least adds a little bit of supply or capacity to that market, then you know does AMD adopt it? Does Japan servers makers adopt it? Who adopts it? I think is an interesting question. Yeah, it, it, they, they they've been in the news a lot lately. Yeah, yeah. So they're 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 definitely active and have something something worth paying attention to. Yeah, but also where are the people are going to come from. Right. So again, if you're trying to leapfrog, I think CSIS put in a 10 year gap, right? Where you're going from, you know, 45 nanometer to two nanometer, you're skipping a lot. And our minister colleague said that, well, we don't have the innovators dilemma for that reason. We can skip ahead to where technology frontier should be and not worry about the in-between steps. That was an optimistic take, but I at least appreciated it. <laughs> right. So. Uh, but yeah, I mean, where, where will the talent come from and, and what's the effect of skipping a lot of generations and learnings along the way, right? Uh, it's, it's an interesting question. So Intel, if Intel can do five nodes in four years, why yeah. can't Japan Inc. do, what's that, Warring. 16 nodes in three years? Yeah. So, all right. So yeah, if you're an Intel believer, then you could probably translate some share of that belief to this. I, I mean, at a high level, so say it's six months later, it opens in 2028, to the extent you have close to leading edge fabrication capability in a friendly country that's not Taiwan. I think that's probably a good thing for the market. Yeah. Does it add a GPU fabricator? So AMD has another supply, for example, which is something the CEO has been publicly talking about. I think it's interesting, right? So adding a little bit of diversity at that market on the supply side uh, probably is a healthy thing. Yeah, Although I will I, say they're also using ASML, just like everybody else. Just like everyone else, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I think it's it's one of those things where I think most people who are very commercial 
active in semis today are a little bit you think? Uh, skeptical sure. about Rapidus, but at the same time, uh, it, it seems like there's a lot of will to see something succeed there, and so I, I don't totally discount them. It's hard. It's hard what they're doing, and I'm, I shouldn't joke about it, but no. But at the same time, I, it's, I, 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 I wouldn't write them off. I think they're they're worth. It's worth paying attention to what's happening. <laughs> I, you know, and, I, and this gets back to your macroeconomics question earlier. Like, I think Japan has a position just by being competent at executing as friendly and not Taiwan, with yeah. a lot of cheap land and a fair amount of talent and an increased willingness to house international talent. If you can sort of execute just on that basis and offer yourself as a second source that's not U.S. because there are people who don't want to be in the U.S. or it's hard to be in the U.S. It's not Taiwan. It's not mainland China. I think there's a story there, you know, as a second source or a third source, adding a little bit of diversity to an ecosystem, which I think is healthy. And that had makes some assumptions about administrative continuity, the ability to access capital. There's a lot of assumptions in that model, but I think that's a broadly positive story for Japan if you're looking at it. So that's that's a good segue because I want to talk about uh, a, a recent event. Sure. That, get into the policy world. Um, li- listeners may remember uh, about uh, um, three weeks ago, about a month ago, San Francisco hosted the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Conference, APEC. And as a sort of a side event to that, uh, Japan's Minister of Ec- Economy, Trade and Industry, METI, a man named Nishimura Yas- Yasutoshi, uh, you arranged to have him come speak at, at Haas. Yes. And I thought that, that was pretty interesting. You invited me to attend, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I'd love, love to hear what this guy says." Because for many of you may recognize that name, Medi is the sort of descendant of Midi, which was the Japanese super ministry that was like the boogeyman in all those 1980s protectionist stories about Japan dominating. And so very important, even to this day. It's not quite as big as it was back in the 80s, but it's still important policy center in Japan. That's big influence on their economy, their economic policies. And uh, so Minister Nishimura came to speak at Haas. And I want to give a little context to this because uh, it was an interesting setting. Uh, He got up and he wanted to talk about uh, the innovation center that Japan and and Berkeley are working on sort of to build an incubator, foster a startup ecosystem. That was his sort of headline talk. And he talked about it for a few minutes and he gave normal policy discussion about it. But it was this being Berkeley, the second he started talking, of course, there was a protester who stood up and started reading from some prepared manifesto. (laughs) And she was sort of shouting and disrupted everything. And she was escorted off out of the room. But she had co-conspirators. She had like five or six co-conspirators in the audience who every few minutes would randomly pop up and interrupt and start yelling about something. And I never quite could follow what they were talking about. But that was their goal, just to be disruptive. Like that's (laughs) the... The modern protest tactic, I guess. And I think for his part, the Minister Nishimura was incredibly gracious about it, right? He just took it all in stride. He never got flustered. He made he kept saying good things about like, oh, I love American democracy. Free speech is really important. He came across, you know, very charming. And the protesters were you could ignore them, but I could tell that they were they were causing a disruption, right? And I could see in your eyes and some of the other organizers, you're all getting a little a little tense right because this is that doesn't it's not a great setting not a great look no <laughs> um 
And then the the comment, the, his he finished his remarks, and you as the MC, you got up and you yeah. opened it yeah. the floor to questions. And my first thought was, John's a madman. <laughs> like, like we have no idea what's about to happen here. Like, right? This is who knows what questions are going to get asked. And that, but very quickly, I realized, wait a second, I can ask a question. And so before I even knew it, my hand was in the air. And I think you you recognized me because I was trolling you with my Chicago booth hat, and uh, and you you recognized me, and so you called on me to ask. And of course, I asked about you know minister, what's the latest in Japanese economic policies around semiconductors? And I was fully prepared for him to give like a just a normal platitude: semis are important. Japan is love semis. And it's just like, you know what every politician would say about semiconductors, but he didn't do that. He actually answered the question. And he talked for like good 10, 15 minutes. And it was very clear that one, he he really knew the subject. And two, he really cared about it. Like he was really interested. I like I was I, I really wish I could have like grabbed a beer with him afterwards and like picked his brain. Because it was it was he had a lot of interesting things to say. And he he sort of started the conversation by talking about the history of the industry. And he mentioned like the 80s. And he kind of pinned the decline on you on Japanese semis on US Japan trade frictions. Right. He, you know, he kind of he didn't quite he was too diplomatic to say it, but he kind of implied that like the reason Japanese semis declined was because of US trade policies in the nineties. And I and I remember thinking at that, I was like, those protesters got nothing. They tried to cause an incident and everyone ignored them. But here I ask a good faith question and I've <laughs> sparked a trade war. So but he gave a really good thoughtful answer and so i was wondering if you could like what, what did you take away from his answer like, what was he talking about what was he trying to convey yeah let, let, let me back up a little so the the nature of the event during apec week so apec week was november 13th in san francisco and so usually there are morning and afternoon sessions and the day he came there were what are called ministerial meetings in the morning at moscone and in the afternoon so you basically got the super narrow window and what happens is all the stakeholders who want the ministers to come and talk basically are getting in their ask and the people at the consulate and many staff or the various minister staff because there are other ministers who are in town for the week, right? You've got 20 countries, all of whom are sending people. I mean, they're all fending off these requests and there's a bit of a contest and, you know, fortunately, <laughs> Berkeley won uh, uh, this year. We got yeah, basically- Yeah, it was a good get for you. You did, yeah. that's, that's, that was impressive. We, we basically got 45 minutes of the minister's time. He actually, it's funny, he spontaneously went to Berkeley Skydeck afterwards. That was not planned. He basically got in the limo and drove down to the Exeter because he wanted to see it. <laughs> so it was a little bit of spontaneity that came at the end of the event. Clearly, he was not ruffled by uh, the protesters and kind of took it in stride. And I should say the consulate staff uh, seemed to have taken it in stride also. Uh, a couple things that you mentioned that I want to get into. So it was really interesting hearing the sitting minister, minister of Medi referred to the antecedent Medi, referred to Charles Johnson, Referred, so some of your listeners will remember the name Chalmers Johnson, Midi in the Japanese Economic Miracle from the 1980s. Right? He was faculty at Berkeley back in the day. Um, so he referred to that sort of tongue in cheek and said, like, Some of you will remember me <laughs> or remember right. my agency. That's so right. he had a little fun with the myth, right? Yeah. And you could tell it yeah. to someone with a sense of humor. Um, but that, you know, clearly, it, it was a good thing you wore your red booth hats because there we were in a sea, a sea of people. And there's someone out in the audience who has the acme, uh, <laughs> the boldest to troll me with a booth hat. Oh, it's Jake Goldberg. All right, let's call on him. Um, and you asked him a, a broad question, right, on semis, and you yeah. could sort of see him pause and reflect and say, "Okay, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take the bait. 
thanks thanks for the question i'm going to take the bait and he went off for like 10 minutes um yeah uh uh but that's clearly something you want to talk about and i think thanks to you jay we opened the door to a sequel event at some point so I, <laughs> i'll be working with consulate staff to try and set that one up uh down the road um i, I guess a couple things first one of the interesting things you learn when you're dealing with a lot of staff to set up these events is the caliber and preparedness of some of the civil servants who work at these agencies, like from the speech to the logistics, there's a lot of really smart people who still work at Medi, uh, and, and kind of were in the background, making sure his remarks were just right, that he was there. There was a lot of preparation. So that part of it was really interesting. Uh, his remarks on semis were very thoughtful. He basically integrated the innovator's dilemma into it. He's like, look, you know, people are skeptical that we can leapfrog, but here's why we can. Um, and the playbook he laid out uh, was basically almost straight from the pages of Tiger Technology. We're licensing tech from IBM. We're licensing tech from IBEC and Belgium. We've got this consortium. We're going to build it and we're going to execute. And, you know, come see us. <laughs> it was basically his message. He's like, come yeah. see us in Japan, right? Uh, which is super interesting. And so you definitely gave him a question that he clearly wanted to talk about. He couldn't talk about it at more next. Okay. That's good. I'm glad yeah. I didn't... Uh... No, trade war. No, no, you, you you did not. Uh, yeah, and it's funny because th there's a grain of truth to what he said, right? So 1986, you do have an agreement between the U.S. The, the exact name escapes me, but the semiconductor agreement that signed this year, which opened up some of Japan's market to U.S. It changed. It actually set the floor for pricing for semis being sold into the U.S. so as to prevent dumping. So there's a grain of truth to what he said. It's not the total truth, but it's partial. And, and so that's 1986 when you and I were both probably 14, 15 years old, right? So <laughs> no comment. <laughs> you are ageless and beautiful, but you know, ballpark, you're probably around it. Um, so yeah, there's a the grand truth there. And so the trade impeded, but then again, you could say that's what trade is supposed to do, right? What try and <laughs> try and protect and get to sustainable outcome for the perspective of the two parties. And so that was the intent of the parties at that time. There was another person in the room. Uh, actually, our former U.S. ambassador to APEC, uh, Larry Greenwood, who was ambassador to APEC under uh, Condi Rice, so Bush administration 2000s. But his older job was trade negotiator. And so he was the one who had been negotiating with Medi, trying to break down doors. And it's very interesting, you know, years later, Larry's probably 70, Mr. Nishimoto's in his early 60s, seeing people on a very amicable basis and seeing how the nature of the conversation has changed from, you know, open your door, let me in to how can we collaborate? What's the synergy that we have between countries? And so maybe this goes to another part of the conversation. I think you might have, which is like, what's the dynamic between the US and Japan now? Broadly, I see it as, it is collaborative on a lot of levels and, 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 and welcome <laughs> uh, in that sense. So I want to be conscious of time. We're getting, sure. we're run, we're a little short, we're running out, Okay. but I just want to, let me take stock on where we are and I want to get your thoughts on where things are headed, right? Okay. So we have. We have Japan's semiconductor industry coming coming back and building on its strengths. We have a, a ministry that is aware that there are some big <laughs> gaps and we have some policies in place to help them leapfrog past those. And uh, we have signs of you know corporate corporations getting taking this all more seriously. And on top of which, we have U.S.-China trade friction looks very much likely to benefit Japan both as a as a as a partner for the U.S., you okay. need Japan to to sort of support those sanctions; so they won't work. But at the same time, 
Japan as as yeah. an alternative for Chinese companies who want to get semis. Right. Right. It's, you know, Huawei's done a lot of business with some of these companies yep. we talked about earlier. Sure. So wh- where do you think now things are headed? Like what, you know, feel free to prognosticate. Yeah, I mean, that's a, yeah, I'm not, I, I know people who call themselves Japan bulls or Japan optimists, and I'm neither. I'm more of a Japan stakeholder or Japan watcher. So I don't necessarily prognosticate on saying it's going to go up and right at this angle. But rather, there's a lot of reasons why I think Japan's interesting, more relevant now, just by dint of being not the US, not Taiwan, not China, but having a lot of relevant capabilities in very relevant industries right now, ready for semis to land, to capital, to a government that's willing to, you know, for reliances to get things done if it sees it's important and put its hand on the scale. And there's probably a little bit more muscle memory there in government than there is in ours. We don't really know how to do industrial policy just yet. Like, let's see if we can get through the 2024 election. Otherwise, all bits are off, right? So... That's a whole other comment. Whereas Japan, you have at least some amount of administrative continuity. You can say, well, if we need to open this plant by 2027, you can probably be pretty confident it's going to open in 2027, right? And so I think that's maybe a thing to think about there. Uh, From the perspective of listenership, I mean, there's a lot of interesting sort of mid-caps there that are worth watching. I'm not going to say, you know, look at this one or the other one, but rather Japan has what it sees as a bit of a problem, which is a lot of companies that are successful in niches, but none of them are super big or too big to be acquired, right? And I might, and I might put a neat door or a sahi glass kind of in that quarter. So those uh, companies, should they execute, uh, should should be in a good position. And then going forward, I think you're going to see just broadly a lot, the continuity, it's interesting. Um, there's been a lot of dialogue between the US and Japan, a lot of axes, um, foreign affairs, medi, uh, energy, where you're seeing a lot of attempts at sort of facilitating collaboration. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that uh, going forward to the extent the U.S. has the same administration <laughs> going forward yeah, in 2025. So we'll, maybe that's a place to stop that conversation. Wonderful. This yeah. has been uh, very informative. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for, for your time. And thanks well, for thanks for on. having me. And um, we'll do the sequel on Toshiba at some other point. This is one where I think uh, you, you can probably share a lot of your experiences with listeners. Uh, absolutely, we'll 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 pencil it in. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure I know anything about Toshiba, but I didn't even know how to pronounce it until today. So, all right, but we'll we'll do our best. Okay. Um, thank you, everybody. Any any place where where can people find you online? Ah, well, I have a Substack. So if you just look up J O N M E T Z L E R dot Substack, you'll find me there. Uh, I'm easy enough to find. If you look John Metzler Berkeley, you'll find me online. So I'm not, I'm not, I have a large enough digital footprint, which I don't think I'm too hard to find. I look forward to hearing from your, from your many listeners. So thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends, like, share, all the rest. And uh, until next time. Uh, all right. This has been the podcast. Thank all right. You. Thank you. Thanks for having me.